As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Beal puts it up and in, and the Wizards win it. Davis, the Latvian laser has arrived. 53, double nickel. In the stoop. Shapiro, Konnichiwa. Hi, Wizards fans. Welcome to the latest edition of the Wizards Talk podcast. Chris Miller. I am joined by someone that is going to give us uh, a little bit of a history lesson with the Washington Bullets. Uh, Tim Legler played uh, four seasons for the Bullets. Uh, he was a 1996 NBA three-point shooting champion and uh, is going to speak about just that era when the Bullets and the Bulls went head up in that first round. Uh, Legs, it's great to have you. Before we get to that, on the day in which we're recording this, we get the news that West Unsell had passed away at the age of 74. When you think of Bullets Wizards franchise, West Unsell is synonymous. He's at the top of the spear. As someone that had played for this organization, what were your thoughts when you heard that he passed? Yeah, man, gut punch, no doubt. It's, you know, it's, it's anytime you get word like that and, you know, you don't expect that. Right now, obviously, we're all paying attention to the news and we're constantly reading things and updating ourselves and looking and all of a sudden, bam, you know, you get that update on your phone, you get that news point on your phone and it takes your breath away for a second because immediately you're transported back to that time and, and your relationship with that particular person. You know, for me, it goes way deeper than even being part of the Wizards and Bullets organization. And I was two years of each, two years as a Bullet, two years as a Wizard. So I was there for the changeover. It's more than about the relationship I had as a player with Wes Unseld as the front office executive. I go back to my, really my childhood. I mean, I was born in D.C. I lived in Baltimore first 12 years of my life, moved to Richmond, Virginia, played high school ball down there. So the first, you know, true athletes I identified with as heroes were, of course, my beloved Washington Redskins because I was born into a season ticket holder family with the Redskins. And to this day, I believe burgundy and gold. But it was also the Washington Bullets. Those were the first professional athletes and basketball players that I fell in love with. Elvin Hayes, Wes Onsell, Bobby Daniels, like that group of guys. Um, I remember going to my very first basketball camp, you know, when I was 12 years old. And I had a T-shirt that I got and I dyed it Bullets colors and I put Unselled on the back of it. And I had another one with number 11 and Hayes on the back. So going all the way back to that time and now you fast forward to later on in my NBA career, I come to Washington in the mid-90s. And now Wes is there. He's part of the organization. And the thing I always remember about Wes Unseld is, to me, he's the epitome of what you would label a gentle giant because he was a mountain of a man. 
He's one of the strongest physical specimens that's ever stepped on a floor in an NBA court. The, the stories of him are legendary about his physical strength, his rebounding, his outlet passing, like all of those things. But he had the biggest heart. He was a kind man. He was a respectful person. He always treated me great. He treated my family great. And every other person I ever saw Wes Unsell come in contact with. So he went beyond whether you regarded him as a basketball player or a front office executive, or if you were critiquing those aspects, it was more than that. It was just, this is a man that I consider a great man. When you were around him, you knew you were around somebody with a big heart that genuinely cared deeply for other people. And so, yeah, when I got that news, it definitely was a gut punch. I took my breath away. And it's, it's, it's now adding to a list of people that we've lost um, in the basketball community, but then specifically, people that I have lost recently that, you know, Jerry Sloan, I had a chance to play for in Utah. My high school basketball coach recently passed, who was an incredible mentor in my life. And now another guy, Wes Unseld, who I looked up to and admired from the time I was a little kid all the way getting an opportunity to play for him. So heartfelt condolences go out to the Unseld family. I got to know his wife, his children, um, just great people through and through. And it's a sad day for basketball in general, but particularly for the Washington Bullets and Wizards community. Legs, I got to ask you, because it happened to me the first time I met the man. When he shook your hand, were you, was your hand impacted? No question. I think the <laughs> firmest handshake I've ever gotten in my life, and you just don't see it coming, right? There's another guy, Tom Gola, who was a legendary you know, NBA figure, one of the greatest college players of all time in my alma mater, LaSalle. It's the only national championship LaSalle ever won was 1954. Tom Gola was the star of that team. First time I shook Tom Gola's hand, I, he almost brought me to my knees. And, you know, you're, you think I have a pretty firm handshake. I learned that at a young age, right? That's how you're supposed to show integrity and character. You look a man in the eye, shake his hand. I've always done that. I almost was brought to my knees the first time I shook Tom Gola's hand. And the only handshake I think I've ever encountered in my life that can surpass that was Wes Unseld. So there was no doubt about it. But I had been warned. So I was more prepared when I shook Wes's hand. So he might've been looking at me like, man, you're all aggressive with your handshake. Cause I was just trying to offset what he was about to do to my hand. I was not um, given a heads up before it happened to me the first time. And I, I've told all my friends this today. Um, the one thing I loved about him was because you had so much respect for him when he extended your hand and you knew what was about to happen, you just took the L. Right. And I remember, I think it was, uh, it's been a while, but I remember the last time he came to the arena, he did a pregame show with me and he's walking up and he's done this to me so many times that I knew it was going to happen. And we caught eyes and he gives you that wet, you know, the West grin, like, Oh yeah, it's coming. And he extended his hand and I'm like, okay, I have two options. I could be stupid and not accept his handshake or I could accept it and be in pain for the next 20 minutes. And he knows what he's doing and he laughs and he gives you, he doesn't want to do interviews. I don't know if this ever happened to you, but he doesn't want to do any, or if there's something that he doesn't want to do, he's like, I don't want to do it. And then you keep talking to him and you kind of like walk him down a little bit. Then he ends up doing it. Like you said, gentle giant, great man. So what was it like for you as a young man that grew up watching the bullets to now playing for the team and him being an executive, what was that first moment like when you're like, yo, I used to look up to this dude? Yeah, dream come true for me. Honestly, when I had taken a little bit of a different route, obviously, I left Richmond, went to LaSalle, and then went on my journey as a pro. And I wasn't drafted, so I took a different route you know, than a lot of guys. I went uh, to Europe. I did the CBA thing, which is now the G League for the younger listeners out there. 
you know, Omaha, Nebraska, Rochester, Minnesota, Youngstown, Ohio. I played in all those places trying to make my dream happen. And then got some 10 days in the league in Utah, Denver, Phoenix, and kind of, you know, starting to get a taste of it. Could I make it? I finally got my big break going to Dallas and had a very good year there. Played very well in Golden State. And next thing you know, I'm a free agent summer of 95. I signed with Washington. Complete dream come true for a lot of reasons. One, you know, anytime you get an opportunity to come home and play near your family. I mean, for me, my family at that time was in Richmond, my mom, my dad, my family, and that was their home team, still is. That's part of their local cable broadcast is the, is the Washington Bullets at the time. So the fact that my family now got to come to a lot of games, but then even on the nights when they couldn't, this before league pass, you know, they could see you on TV in their local cable package, a lot of friends in the area. It was tremendous. And then, man, you know, the first time you now get an opportunity to, to work with Wes Unseld on a daily basis, this guy that you remember idolizing growing up in those Bullets teams are one of the very first times I remember ever crying over a sporting event was when the Bullets lost to the Supersonics in that first title opportunity. You know, broke my heart. So now you're here you are and you are on charter flights with this guy. You're on buses with him. You're at practice with him. You're getting a chance to know him on a human level. Honestly, man, it's, it's, it was, you know, I was, I was pinching myself. And, and it was the best year of my career playing for Jimmy Lynham. Um, John Nash had come in there and brought me in there as, with, as, as a GM. It was all people that I had known from Philly. So it just felt like home. It felt like family. There was a reason I was so comfortable. And there's a reason it was the best year of my career of that first year in Washington. Unfortunately, at the end of that year, game 80, 81, somewhere in there, I had that severe knee injury where I tore three ligaments in my knee. I spent three more years in Washington. I never really got back to that level. I never physically recovered. It shortened my career. And I'm sad about that, but man, am I blessed and lucky to have come back and had that year in 95, 96 and being around people that I grew to, to care for so much and people I had respected so much to that point in my life. All right. I got to get to just what it was like to be that veteran. You talked about your journey. Man, you, you, you really went through it to get to the ultimate goal of playing in the NBA, right? Two roads diverge into one. You took the one less traveled by. This made all the difference. Remember that poem when you were a kid? Yeah, I just, sure. I think about your road, man. But what was it like when you were playing with dudes like Chris Weber and Jawan Howard? Yeah, man, that was, you know, so, so I get to Washington and, and you know, Jawan and Chris are there. And we were lucky. The league was different then. You know, think about it. Every team was playing a true power forward and a true center. So every team had two bigs on the court. So the ball went into the post a lot. And, you know, at that time, even the guys with the green light to shoot threes whenever they wanted to, you know, were taking like five a game. Like you were, you were self-conscious about taking that early one on the break. Like it was just a different mindset. Even for someone like me who led the league in three-point shooting, who was, that's what I was on the floor to do. So the ball went inside first, and I was blessed because I had guys that were so good at commanding double teams. They were unselfish. They gave it up. And I just thought it was a perfect setup for me because we were so complimentary of each other. I mean, Chris Weber will go down, and I played in, in Utah with John Stockton and Carl Malone. I played in Golden State with Chris Mullen, who was on the Dream Team. I played in Phoenix with Tom Chambers and Kevin Johnson. You know, I played in Dallas with Jamal Mashburn. I played with great, great players and against great players. Chris Weber is the most naturally gifted, talented player I ever played with. And, you know, he and I were very close when I played there. I thought we complimented each other well. The year that he was out with his shoulder surgery, that was Juwan's best year of his career. So he just filled up, picked up the slack. He averaged like 23 a game that year. 
and we had three-point shooters around him, and it was just a great mix, a great blend. And, again, you know, it was just one of those deals where you knew you had worked hard to be there, but still you're appreciative of the fact that you're playing with great players and you're in all the talent around you. And I was very lucky to have two great post players that complemented my game, and I hopefully they would say if you asked them that I made their life a little bit easier as well by maybe getting a few less double teams down there. We're joined by Tim Legler joining us here on the Wizards Talk podcast as we're talking about the Bullets and Wizards, um, that era in which the question that we all want to know is what could have been, right? <laughs> you guys get the Bulls, you play them in that first round. They win 3-0, but as I was looking at these notes, Tim, I mean, the games were all close. I oh, mean, yeah. these were games in which, you know, a shot here, a defensive stop here, a rebound here. What do you remember about that series? Because is that the 72 and is that the 72 and 10 Bulls team? Yeah, I believe that's the year they won 72. And we took them to the wire. You would never be able to put together how close that series was if you just pulled it up and looked at the scores. You would know. We we had them at the point where you're talking one possession games inside of a minute twice. Um, and the game at home, so we lose the first two in Chicago. I think Jordan dropped 50-plus in one of those games. I, I remember uh, getting the gander at that a little bit. Um, we lose two there, one of which we had a couple of turnovers um, and, and just some mental mistakes late that cost us an opportunity to steal a game against, at that point, the best team that had ever existed in the NBA. Um, we go home, then. I will never forget the atmosphere running out onto what was then, you know, U.S. Air Arena out Landover, where we were playing at the time, uh, running out of the tunnel onto the court for that game is the greatest home environment that I ever experienced as an athlete. Um, the, the, the towels, the fans waving the towels, the excitement, not just because we were in the playoffs, it was also look who we were playing. It was the Bulls, right? This rock star of a team that was in your building. And every time you played them in the regular season, even it was heightened. Uh, adrenaline. You could tell something was different in the air. Everything about those game days felt different. Well, now here we are, and because we had played them so tough, people were excited to see if we were going to be able to get one, and I'll never forget that game either because we, we felt we had that game won, and I remember Scottie Pippen getting a late three-point play, a dunk and an and one, uh, very late in the game, inside of probably you know a minute, maybe even less than that, that turned the game. And again, we were young, and we hadn't been in that position before, and we didn't manage some of those late-game situations well, and this was a, a veteran proven team, you know, going for another championship. So they were able to get through us. But I remember some of the comments coming out of Chicago after that. They were like, watch out for this team because of they're, they're young, they're hungry, they're talented, and this is the next team to watch for in the Eastern Conference. I will never forget reading all that coverage. Unfortunately, <laughs> we, we made some personnel changes around that time, and we sort of blew up what we had going on and then you know that it was a drought for a while from that point on yeah it's kind of like the natural progression of this conversation legs is just why was it broken up if, if you have that type of momentum you've got young players um they're ascending you've got the greatest player of all time saying uh-oh if they keep this thing together we might have some problems down the road uh i guess the natural question any fan would ask you legs is why break it up? Yeah, good question. And the people, you know, that made some of those decisions, I guess that's who you'd have to ask. It actually goes to the year before that. 
So we draft Rasheed Wallace, I think fourth overall, comes in, one of the most talented big men I had ever seen. Um, just and, and a guy, to me, I just have described as unselfish um, to a fault because I don't think that Rasheed Wallace was a guy that ever coveted being a superstar in that level. He just wanted to be a teammate and to win. Everywhere he had ever been in his life, from being on the best high school team in the country to playing at North Carolina, one of the best teams in the country, to coming to Washington, all he'd ever known was winning. He ended up obviously in Detroit, helped them win a championship. Really might have been the piece that got them over the top to win there. So that's all he was about. We draft him in, in 95. He plays that rookie year, and he was a very emotional guy. And he had a guy that, you know, he got a lot of technicals that year, and he had a reputation he was starting to develop with NBA officials. And I think that the organization were wondering if they were ever going to be able to get him under control emotionally. And it was such a premature calculation because he was so young, so talented. Clearly he was going to mature. But I think you had to have some conversations with him and make him understand the professionalism of where he was. And they gave up on him too soon. Now, what follows after that? So they trade him, you know, a young big for an older guard in Rod Strickland, who was a great player and one of my favorite teammates I ever had. But most teams don't trade young bigs for older guards. It's, you know, at that time in the league, especially when the league was much bigger. Then it goes to Chris Weber. We decided to make that move. Again, you trade a young superstar level big for an older guard in Mitch Richmond. Um, and so we changed our identity immediately over the course of a really 12-month calendar period where we had Ben Wallace, by the way, who was a guy that we didn't even know what we had, <laughs> undrafted free agent, drove up to uh, D.C., works out, makes the team, spends a couple years there, leads the NBA in rebounding in the preseason, and then because we were so deep up front, really didn't play much during the regular season, they send him off to Orlando for Isaac Austin. So think about what I'm saying. In, in a span of a couple of years, we traded Rasheed Wallace, Chris Weber, and Ben Wallace. Um, it's hard to recover <laughs> from that, you know? And to think that in addition to those three guys, we also had Juwan Howard and George Marisant, who was the most improved player in the league one year. So look at the depth that we had up front in an era when size was really important in the Eastern Conference. So we made some miscalculations. And once you do that, it's very difficult to recover. Like trades like that that don't pan out can set your organization back years. And I think that's what happened really with the case of the, of the Bullets slash Wizards at that time. Um, and they've had some competitive teams since, but we were poised to be a breakthrough team that potentially could have made deep playoff runs and we never were given the opportunity. You know, Legs, they have these segments called like, what if, or what if this would have happened? And this, this is probably one of the best case studies for that. When you think oh, about yeah. how many bigs you guys had and what they ended up being, you know, Ben Wallace goes to be a two-time defensive player of the year, wins two championships with, with the Pistons. Um, it, it's just very interesting. And I, I, I hear it all the time from Bullet Wizards fans is like that era, as small of a window as that was, had a chance to be like really special. Oh yeah, and we're leaving. We're leaving. Uh, we're leaving. One, sorry, we're leaving one thing out. I would be remiss if I didn't mention because it wasn't just the bigs. Another thing that took place that year in '95, '96, that that changed not only the course of his career. Who knows how much it affected us as an organization? Robert Pack, that year was our starting point guard. Robert Pack was headed to the All Star game. He was one of the most most explosive young guards in the league. We, you know, he had made a name for himself in Portland mainly as a backup. Now he's in Washington. He's starting. He's, I think he was probably averaging about 18 and eight, something like that. We're about mid season. And I was at the practice. We were, I think we were in Cleveland 
getting ready to play, day off, we're practicing, and he is involved in a collision on a screen that's set by the late, great Derek Smith, who was an assistant coach on that team, who, who passed away prematurely. He was in practice that day, and he suited up, and we were short, had some guys. He set a pick on Robert Pack. They banged knees. Robert Pack ended up with nerve damage in the lower half of his knee and, and down all the way through his foot. It basically ended his season and shortened his career. He was in his late 20s, 27, 28, I want to say, at that time. Robert Pack could have ended up being, who knows, could have ended up being a multiple-time All-Star as a starting point guard in Washington if that collision doesn't take place in a fluke way at practice on an off day in Cleveland, change his season, change his career, and just add that to the list of what if with that group uh, in Washington because we also had the best three-point shooting team in the league at the time. So that was a great combination. We were on the verge. We felt something great was coming, and a lot of different circumstances derailed it. So it is, it is definitely an interesting time for people to go back, open up some history books, and look at what went on with those teams around that time um, and it's a shame that we weren't able to see that through. Man, I didn't even know that Pac-Man story. Now he's an assistant coach of the Wizards. I guess I got some conversations I got to have with him when we oh, finally yeah. get out of this Absolutely. pandemic. Take me back to 96, man, the All-Star game for you, a special for you, uh, launching from distance. What was that like for you? How did it help your career? What was it like in terms of maybe some endorsement dollars coming your way? What were your family's reaction? What was that time like for you? Yeah, amazing because, you know, first of all, I had participated in a three-point contest when I was in the CBA and won that. So I, had, I was familiar with the competition. And I always, look, shooters are cocky. I thought I'm the best shooter in the world. I don't care if I'm in the NBA right now or not. I want to be in that competition one day. And obviously, you know, growing up watching it. And you know, Larry Bird was one of my favorite athletes of all time. You know, watching him win it when I was a kid and, and watching some of the great shooters and Craig Hodges and guys like that. And now here I am, I'm in Washington, and I'm, I'm, I'm having a great first half of the season, leading the league in three-point shooting. I think I was at 57% going into that competition. So people finally were starting to take notice of me a little bit more, like, nationally. To that point, I was just this guy that had battled and plugged along. People in D.C. by that point, you know, you get to February of 96, they had, they had pretty much embraced me now because I was the guy doing that thing for them off the bench and, and, and having that kind of year. But nationally, this was my chance. We're in San Antonio, you know, 50 something thousand people in the Alamo dome. Um, the best shooters in the world are going to fight this out. Defending champion was Glenn Rice. For me, I can tell you, it probably meant more to me than anybody there because of the road I had taken. So now here I am, you know, I think I was 28, 29 years old this is your chance. If you really think that you're on this level and you are the best shooter in the world, go out there tonight and prove it. So I went down there incredibly focused. I was also on a high because my, my first child, my daughter had been born like nine days earlier. So I'm, I'm kind of still in a cloud over that. I go down to San Antonio and sure enough, I'm able to have a great night and, and win that competition. And you can even see when you go back and watch the footage, it was, it was emotional for me because Anybody that knows what it's like to, to have a dream and to be rejected and to get cut and to get 10 days and sent back and to be told that, you know, you, you don't quite have this or you're missing this, to have people even in your own life tell you that, hey, man, maybe this just isn't going to happen. Maybe you should put that degree to, to use. Like all of these things you're fighting to finally break through, start to establish a name for yourself. And now it's like, boom, everybody in the basketball world is watching. What are you going to do? 
So to be able to go out and respond to that, I was proud of myself. I was um, just emotional because of how much it meant to me because of the journey I had taken. So all in all, just a phenomenal weekend. I'll never forget my, my man, Jawan Howard, um, who was an all-star that year, who was, you know, the great footage of him in his suit, sitting there courtside, watching the competition, cheering for me, and then asking people for money. Cause he was like, give me my money, give me my money right after I won it. Because yeah, apparently he had made some bets with some of those guys. I think uh -huh. Grant Hill was sitting there, maybe Reggie Miller. I remember the footage and I didn't see that until like days afterwards but I can't tell you how much it meant to me to get that kind of support from my teammate uh, who was down there as an all-star as well. Did you ever ask him how much money he lifted off of those guys? <laughs> I never did, but I probably should have got a cut. Right. I should have got yeah. a percentage of that, I think. You got to get at least 4%. Come on, man. I hear you. Tim Legler yeah. joining us here on the Wizards Talk podcast. I'm Mike Tirico, and on the next episode of Sports Uncovered. Sean Taylor had the big plays, the big hits, the big moments for the Washington Redskins, but that all came to a tragic immediate end in November of 2007. He died saving the life of the two loves of his life. He died a man. Subscribe to Sports Uncovered for free wherever you listen to podcasts. Tim, let's kind of advance it to Wizards present day. You're an analyst for ESPN, also for Sirius XM NBA Radio. You always keep it real in your analysis, but is there any part of you that's kind of like, man, listen, this is my team. Like, listen, Wall and Beal, these are the guys that are going to take this franchise. Nick, how do you analyze the Wizards these days as John is coming back next season? Yeah, I mean, look, you definitely feel some of that. You know, for me, even though I spent, you know, some time in Dallas, I spent some time in Golden State. Washington is what people identify me with, right? And, and so it's almost like, you know, your college. It's like, you know, I was there for four years. It's like I'm an alum of, of the Washington. And people always say, were you a bullet or a wizard? And I'm one of those rare guys that can say both. You know, I was there for the crossover. Um, so, yeah, you definitely feel connected to the area. I talked about my sports teams that I love being from that area. Huge Capitals fan, huge Redskins fan. Scotty Brooks is a guy that I consider a friend. I mean, I, he and I – went through training camp together back in Minnesota um, when, and he'll tell you to this day, you want another story? Ask Scott Brooks how bad I got shafted in Minnesota when I had clearly outplayed guys they kept on that team. And I was the last cut uh, uh, in training camp. Um, and Scott was there with me through that playing for Eric Musselman in Minnesota. So that's when I first met him. We've maintained a friendship all these years. So I'm pulling for him. So yeah, my heart's invested in it, but you have to be honest too about what you're seeing and and at times it's it's not always easy but the topic comes up and so you try to break it down the best you can but part of this with them has been they've had some pretty horrific luck with some of the injuries that they've sustained there's just you know you can sit there and say uh, their excuses they're not excuses there are reasons for certain things and that has been a big part of it the personnel decisions always going to play into it but what they've gone through over the last couple of years it's been very difficult because even when they've been in the postseason they've had guys banged up now you're missing John Wall, who's an all-star caliber player perennially at the point guard position. He's put too much pressure on Bradley Beal to have to do everything. Um, and the talent base, you know, isn't quite what it should be to be able to compete in the Eastern Conference. So, you know, it's an uphill battle for them. Fortunately, they are in the East. And I think it, it's the kind of thing where you can make up ground if you make the right decision in one offseason. You can turn things around pretty quickly. And so I think that's what everybody in Washington is hoping for. You know, John is coming off a devastating injury. It's one that, in my opinion, I think legs is the toughest to come back from when you have the type of explosion, speed, 
and the size that John has coming off a torn Achilles. He's motivated by the words. He doesn't need very much to fuel him, but the reality is, is he is coming off an Achilles injury. What do you think he's going to look like when he comes back next season? Man, it's a great question because you, you hit it on the head. I think, you know, with certain players, you look at what is their differentiating characteristic, right? And for John Wall, it's clearly speed. His speed sets the table for his entire game. Now, you look at the history of that injury, has there been a guy you can think of that was as reliant upon his just straight ahead, up the floor speed as John Wall? You know, there have been other guys who were great athletes or scorers um, that came back and were never quite the same, getting off the floor the same way, you know, being able to finish the same way. It's, it's different. With a guy whose main quality that separates him from everybody else is his ability to put relentless pressure on you up the floor with his straight-ahead speed. I mean, he's as fast as anybody in the league end-to-end. We know that. Your guess is as good as mine. Number one, can he get back? all the way to that level where he's running away from guys because in a league full of the best athletes in the world when you still are considered a guy that can run away from people I mean that's elite level world-class speed you know as good as anybody we've seen in this league ever can he get it all back that's one question and the other is if he doesn't how does that affect the way we view him as a player you know he's a great playmaker he finds guys but his speed helps him get into areas where he's got more time to make decisions. His passing angles are better. His line of vision is better because his speed is separating from people. So let's take away 10% of that speed. Well, when you take away 10% of a guy's quickness that's at the top of the food chain, guess what? 30 dudes just caught up to you because that's how competitive it is in the NBA. So your guess is as good as mine. I'm very curious to see it. He's going to have a really long time off by the next time we see him play competitive basketball. So hopefully that's a good thing for him because some guys have tried to come back too soon from this injury. Um, and I'm praying for him, and I'm hoping we get to see it. It would be a great, great story if he's able to get back and look physically the same way that he did before the injury. Yeah, just talking to him um, and seeing him the last couple of weeks before the pandemic hit, it was uh, – it was jarring, Legs, it, because you talked about it. It's been so long since we've seen him. And none of these players but Bradley Beal know what it's like on a break to run as hard as you can to go to right. the corner. Because this guy, like you said, had that elite level. So I remember seeing him, Legs, in practice, and it caught me. I've covered him since day one he's been in the league. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's that speed that we've been missing for all right. this while. But like you said, that little 10%, man. A lot of dudes are going to catch up. I want to ask you about Bradley Beal. And before Corona hit us, this guy took it to an all-league level, in my opinion, averaging 30 and a half points. But, Legs, I think it's so much more than just the scoring. It's taking on the responsibility of leading the team while John's been out. The fact that he's seeing double teams, triple teams, traps and ones, box and ones. He's seen every defense known to man. How has he developed? Uh, now in his eighth season from your perspective? Yeah, he, you know, I heard Scott recently say, Scott Brooks recently say he, he's one of the best offensive players in the NBA. And he's right. He is. He's that good. Because now he's added the ability. And I think overall, the absence of John Wall ultimately is going to make Bradley Beal a much better player. Because what he has added to his game, and he, he was always a 
you know, a really good ball handler. You don't put up those kind of numbers if you can't handle the basketball as a two guard. But when you now become the primary decision maker, playmaker, you're involved in every imaginable pick and roll scenario defensively, what you're about to see and how much that's going to push you to get better, to be able to escape those situations and still make plays. He's going to be a better player um, than he's ever been when John comes back and they're joined together. Um, he's the full package. He's got a pure stroke. He's got now a you know, big time handle, his ability to play off ball screen, which is what this league is now, has exponentially improved over the last two or three years to where now he's just a lethal, lethal force. And that's why anytime you hear, had heard discussion about, you know, should they trade Bradley Beal, I would have, wouldn't even let people get the question out of their mouth. And I would just stop them in their tracks and say, you don't trade level talent like Bradley Beal. You are never going to get back what he commands. And, and you're going to be on the short end of that. And you're going to regret it if you ever do it. Because you've got a guy that age, that talented, in-house. You find ways to put players around him that now you can elevate the organization. You don't think immediately things – you hit a rough patch. All right, let's bail this situation out. Let's start to break this down and see if we can get back. There are certain guys transcend that. Bradley Beal is one of those guys. So I'm super impressed. The other thing I really liked about Bradley this year, honestly, was his spirits stayed up as a leader emotionally night to night when I'd be watching that team. And obviously, you know, they, they were losing games and wasn't going well. And he was a guy that was still coming out and preparing and competing for 48 minutes. And he seemed like he was embracing more being a leader and his spirits were good. His body language was good. That's so important when you're playing because 82 games is a long haul. If you're losing, I was on some teams in the league that lost a lot. And if you didn't have great leadership, Man, is that torturous every day, day in, day out. And I thought Bradley has done a great job with that growing as a leader and understanding like the tone you have to set every day with your demeanor. It has to be consistent. And I thought he did a great job of that this year as well. Uh, going back to what you said about you don't get rid of a talent like that, I think you're speaking from corporate knowledge. Earlier we were talking about the surplus of bigs that you had, getting rid of them for old veterans. Tim Legler, you're speaking from some experience here couple things and I'll get you out. Uh, how much appreciation do you have for the Latvian laser, Davis Bertans, when he's out here launching from 30, 35 feet as a shooter? Do you take great appreciation in it? Or are you like one of those old heads that's saying, damn, I wish my coach gave me the green light like that when I was playing? Well, listen, first of all, I have great appreciation for guys that do it at a really high level. One, one other thing, and I'm a stickler on this, and I'm going to stick to my guns on it. I think we have come to um, glorify guys as great shooters that, are, that shoot mediocre percentages because so many more guys take the shot now that if you shoot 35 36%, we're now labeling you this big three-point threat. When I played, like you took a lot of pride in being north, certainly north of 40. I mean, I was, think I was 44-something for my career, over 50 a couple of times. Like, that's where you had to be if you wanted to be regarded as one of the best shooters in the league. So when I look at a guy like uh, Bertans that shoots those high percentages, no, I've got tremendous appreciation for it. The only time I get a little envious is just in general looking at the way the league is set up now so that literally there is no such thing as a bad shot. I didn't play with that mentality. The league wasn't set up. The way basketball in general wasn't set up that way. Like I said, I had the green light. And I still was like understanding of what was considered a good shot and what wasn't. 
Um, the, now you have, you know, when I played three, four guys on the roster, we're in that three-point category. These are the guys that are going to take the majority of shots. Now, on a given night, every team has 10 guys take threes. You know, you've got, you've got you know, you'll have five guys on a night take six or more. And that just wasn't the case when I played. So the overall acceptance of that shot as a better shot than anything else you're going to get, I am envious of that because I think, man, what would I have done if I was completely unburdened of the thought process <laughs> of is this a good shot or not? Right. Because I don't think a lot of guys have that mentality at all, and good for them. They're playing in a free era, and I would have loved to experience what that was like as a shooter to not have any regard for time, score, situational three, didn't matter, pull it anytime you want to, and that's been now ingrained in everybody's head. Percentages say that's a better shot. So I would have loved to have played in an era like that. And you'd have made a few more dollars, in my humble opinion. Oh, oh my see, God. I was trying to avoid that because, you know, my therapy kicked in a couple years ago. <laughs> Thanks for bringing up a sore subject. Uh, you know, I think about that quite often when I see that these, these free agent contracts in the summers for guys that fill a very important role, which yeah. is shoot the three at a high rate, take pressure off of post players and star players, and, and certainly even point guards that draw a lot of attention. Um, I think about where I might have been in my career. Look, when I've stayed in Washington my whole career, I don't know, I guess it depends. But you think about the way certain guys fit in with championship caliber teams. And I see myself playing on one of those Cleveland teams with a guy like LeBron or a team like San Antonio, the way they move the ball. And they always seem to have a stable of three-point shooters on the floor. And they valued them so much. You know, a situation like Golden State now. You think about playing in one of those teams and systems, and I just wish I had stayed healthy longer to find out what I've ever been in that situation, whether it was in Washington or somewhere else down the road. Um, I laughed. I was talking to a couple of players about this last week. And, you know, I remember playing AAU basketball and you walk into the gym and you see a couple courts down there. One of your homeboys is playing and I can kind of envision this legs. And this is the funny thing about when they come back and play. Imagine a dude walking in with his backpack on and his slides, and he looks over and he sees, like, CP3, and he's like, oh, Chris is over there hooping, or this guy's hooping. And to me, I think we're going to figure out, Tim, as fans, you analysts and players know this, we're going to figure out who really loves basketball when this comes back. Because, again, there's no, there's no fans. Uh, you're literally hooping, going back to the hotel, from the hotel to the arena. We're going to find out the real guys in the league that really love the game of basketball. And that kind of excites me about the return. And a team like Houston scares the hell out of me because their style is different than everybody else's. I feel like they might be able to catch up on people just because people don't play like them anymore or ever. No, yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, you look at a team like that, you know, even facing them in the regular season when you're in rhythm and shape, but that's the only team in the league that plays that way. That's a very difficult adjustment to make in one shoot around, you know, one film session. And I was in the league and faced certain teams like that. Like, you know, you've you got 40 games at this point. Now this team's rolling in. I've said that about Giannis. You know, it's one thing, and this is why, look, you know, he ran into a team last year that could lock in on him and play a 1-2-2 two, two zone for all intents and purposes and really expose some of his weaknesses when he got to that Toronto series that you can't see in the regular season because when you have one shoot around, to talk about this guy that is unlike any other guy in the league, 
it's very difficult to execute a game plan on the fly like that against the 6'11 dude that plays point guard that goes end to end in three strides. Like it's good luck. You can talk about getting everybody in the paint back defensively. Good luck executing it on the fly when you're not practicing it. Now, when you get to a series, you've got 48 to 72 hours before the first game. Then you've got 24 to 48 hours between games. Well, every game you start to tweak your game plan toward adjusting to him. And, and so now he's got some questions to answer this time around in the postseason. Same thing with a team like Houston. When you're not used to that pace and the way they play, that's going to be an interesting team to have to play. You know, you hit it on the head when you talk about who loves ball, and that's what I brought it up. The way I frame it is I want to see what guys are the best leaders, what coaches are the best coaches, like who got their teams the most prepared for what we're about to see because it's uncharted territory. You walk into a dead arena, no environment, no vibe, no energy to draw on, no adrenaline. It's just you internally finding a way to get yourself into that state of mind. And so we're going to find out a lot about who is able to do that, not just for themselves, but to make sure their teammates are in that state of mind as well. And that comes down to your leaders on the team and it comes down to your coaching staffs. So I'm really fascinated to watch that as well. We're going to have some really interesting matchups in the postseason. Um, and look, I'm as excited as you are to see how it plays out. This is a weird time for me. Normally I would be, ready to cover the NBA finals, whether it's the yeah. studio or at the finals, I'm going to be doing it just like you're looking at me now. You know, they got a camera set up in my house. I'm going to be covering <laughs> the NBA playoffs from home. Um, I don't know if I'll get to do my, my patented touch screens or not breaking down, you know, the, the X's and O's. We're still working on technology for that in this format, but I'm excited, man, just to be talking about games that matter and get back this sport that we all love. And I think, you know, society needs it between what we're going through with the pandemic and what we're going through right now, you know, in a lot of major cities in this country and, and a lot of pain that people are feeling, a lot of rage. We need something right now to take our minds off of that and, and make us appreciate and respect the greatest athletes in the world. Legs, this was an awesome conversation, man. I learned so much and we were all over the road, man, but I think this was therapeutic, hopefully for a lot of our listeners. It was for me. Again, condolences to obviously to obviously Wes Unsell and his family. But I appreciate you, man, taking some time to kind of talk about the good old days and getting us ready for when basketball returns after this uh, this pandemic. Tim Legler, thank you so much for joining us here on the Wizards Talk podcast. Much appreciated. Thank you. Some people just know bundling with Allstate means big savings. Just like they know the right ingredient means big flavor. They know honey on pizza is where it's at. And olive oil on ice cream is the cherry on top. Mm. And they know when you bundle home and auto with Allstate, you can save up to 25%. Mm -mm. Bundled savings vary by state and are not available in every state. Saving up to 25% is the countrywide average of the maximum available savings off the home policy. Allstate Vehicle and Property Insurance Company and Affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois.